Every story needs a hero, and every story needs a villain. Welcome back to Hero and the Villain, the podcast about shadow work and all things dark psychology, taboo, and anything closely related to it. I am Drew. If you have found us on YouTube, please hit subscribe. If you found us on Spotify, hit follow. If you found us, I don't know, on Stitcher, do something with it. I'm sure there's a button you can hit. So this is a landmark episode of sorts. It is the week of January 17th. And every year around this time, for the last 15 years, I have celebrated my sobriety from 99% of addictive substances. I still drink coffee. I don't view caffeine as an issue, mainly because I've yet to see anybody who lost their home and car and job because they drink a lot of coffee. I don't know. It makes you do stuff fast. So maybe you just make a lot of errors and lose your way of life. But I'm talking about alcohol and drugs and prescription pills. And I firmly believe that shadow work is very closely related to addiction and alcoholism because of the work you have to do on yourself once you get sober. So I'm going to tell you a story that kind of gives you insight on why I decided to go sober. It's interesting because after I tell you this story, I was still quite a few months away from entering outpatient rehab. But this was like the thing that... Yeah, this is the thing that kind of started this. When I was still about seven months from outpatient, I was in the middle of what I would consider the worst part of my alcoholism. In the summer of 2005, I was sleeping with this Navy wife uh, who was a dancer at the downtown Deja Vu. Her and her guy, her husband, were in an open relationship. So as long as we didn't exchange cooties, so to speak. He didn't care who she was dating or sleeping with while he was gone and deployed. So after a few weeks of doing our thing, we'll call her Tara. Tara decided to surprise me one night with my gal pal from work wants to have a threesome with you and I. And sure, that sounds like a grand idea. So let's do that. Now I had roommates at the time so I didn't want to bring a threesome of two dancers back to my house with other guys there. I wanted privacy. So I was to meet them at this hotel in Bellevue, Washington. that was called the Paragon that is no longer around. It's been since torn down and turned into an office building. It was right off one of the exits near Bellevue Square. They'd meet me there after work. So my job was to nap for a bit. And since I usually was getting up at 5 a.m. for work, I had been up for quite a while, and yeah, I had to go to work the next day. So since this was during the summer of drunk, 
if you know what that reference is right there, you'll probably chuckle. Like two of you will get that. Anyways, my summer of drunk, I was already drinking fully before they arrived, before I even got to the hotel room. When I got there, I walked to the office to get the room and keys and everything. And since the hotel was set up where there were separate buildings, I had to go from one to the next across the parking lot. So a walking, I would go. In the dark of the night, I looked down on the ground and saw what I call a pass or fail test on the concrete. It was a dark brown leather wallet. In it was an Idaho driver's license, credit card, social security card, a commercial driver's license permit, and around $90 in cash and pictures of a wife, I'm assuming, and kids. It cannot be stated how bad I was doing at this point in my life. A minimum of a bottle of wine a night after work, because isn't that what confused artist types do with their time? They get drunk and write music after work. Weekends, it was a drink and drive fest to see if I was invincible. If my mom's listening, I'm sorry about that one, but I'm still alive. So apparently that didn't do me in. It was boundaries on my own accord broken constantly and ignored. It was being in love with my public image in the club scene in which it really didn't matter at all. In the thick of things, there was a lot of confusion and delusion of who I was at my core at that time. Basically, any trauma that I had unresolved was just running over me. I was lacking anything of meaning and booze and pain pills were constantly in my system. I took the money out of this wallet and threw the wallet far off into the bushes. I bought booze with it and I had my threesome two hours later. A few days later, it had hit me what I did. An out-of-state trucker lost his whole life because of me. He might have been stuck in Washington for a few days with no driver's license, no money, no ID. And I had thrown a picture of his family into a patch of bushes that unless he jumped the fence between the hotel and the freeway, I'm guessing he never found the wallet. Never have I experienced such self-hatred and disgust for myself like I did in that moment. And I sobbed and bawled and fell and crumbled into a fucking fetal position until my ribs hurt. I had spit on everything that my mother had taught me growing up by doing that. And I spent the next few months living in that bottle neglecting any work I needed to do on myself, my soul, my head, my heart. I just resigned to how fucked up I was. I didn't care if I shit on friendships, said stupid shit to people that were allies. I probably did more reckless behavior from that July to January 2006 than I did in my entire drug and drinking history from my teen years all the way up until year 27. Addiction, I was told in rehab, is a disease where there is a dysfunction of an organ. I don't know if I believe that fully. I prefer addiction is somebody trying to fill a void with absolutely nothing. Your addiction, your addiction to booze, pills, drugs, 
it never fills it, never. You may eventually be able to shift from addiction to occasionally, occasionally using, albeit that's very rare. The void is there because you've been hurt or you lack connection to yourself and others. And beings, this podcast dives into shadow work. You're damn right. Addiction and shadow work are linked. Even more so, shadow addictions are an actual thing I found out, but we'll talk about that some other day. The addiction that is a slow festering addiction, it lurks and it can be so subtle that no one, not even the host, is aware of it. It is like where an addict can fully function until they can't, and that is the problem. The part about this that is extremely on a thin wire is two-pronged. Addiction tells you that you have no problem or it changes you into where you know you do and you don't care. It's like the prequel to apathy. Now think of it in terms of your shadow self. If our shadows are the parts of us that need the most work, but are also the scariest parts that more often than not, we reject and ignore, addiction can be a vehicle for our shadows to take over. They end up getting a lot of volume this way, and the parts that need to listen go deaf. All those traumatized parts, those broken parts, those angry and beaten parts of our inner child, those forgotten and unloved parts of our heart we bury with dysfunctional defense mechanism after dysfunctional defense mechanism. Your shadow exists constantly, all the time, whether you do the continual work or not. We know the more we neglect it, of course, we've covered this, it gets stronger. Your addiction has to be looked at for what it is, whether it's substance, sexual, financial, material. For this podcast, we're sticking with the substance part of things. When you get sober... And in order to stay sober, you're forced to look at both these parts and how they interact, and it's nearly impossible not to if you're going to get healthy. If your addiction tells you that you don't care or you don't have a problem and you're oblivious to what your shadow is doing to you in your life, those are now two major parts that you're currently unable to stop from dominating you. I've often said that addiction is the single worst thing for your shadow self. And shadows exist because of shame, guilt, fear, abuse, detachment, regret. Pick some low-frequency emotion. And all these trigger drug and alcohol-seeking via both negative reinforcement and negative urgency. And and where addiction has lifelines with impulsive and compulsive behavior, the shadow is often steering our lives from those unseen levels In addiction's case, it usually has both hands on the wheel. In my case, I had shadow baggage, and I still do, of course, as an adult. Every adult has some form of shadow baggage. I have it from when I was a teenager, and I was rejected in my pivotal teen years for being my young metal self amongst a grunge trend and getting kicked out of a garage band with my friends. Tie that into a broken home and my pivotal teen years, then going towards drunken 20s, and I was just functional mess, needing to belong to something at any cost, thinking that being part of a booze, drug-driven scene, throwing club nights and raves would fulfill or supply that. It just fed that unattended Drew shadow that had no idea it was doing more harm than good. 
The nonstop drinking led to a disconnection for myself. My shadow became the ruling factor of my life, and I never even had a fucking clue. Like I said, addiction makes you oblivious or apathetically oblivious. That's a term. And shadows that have never been properly worked on are already doing damage daily, unknowns to us. Combined, you can figure out how catastrophic that can be. Thinking back to outpatient rehab, and I didn't realize it at the time, but the work we did in order to make small bits of progress on our addictions, at least for me, was shadow work. It was my first true exposure to it, but I didn't know it. When I started my recent shadow work a few years ago, all those techniques I learned were things I already did but failed to identify as shadow work back in those days. In rehab, they told us a few things I think that are important to remember. So for people out there that are addicts or alcoholics, whether you admit it, realize it, know it, etc., you cannot heal your shit using the same brain that got you addicted in the first place. We're not talking about brain transplants, people. Come on. We're talking about the dysfunctional, hurt, abused, scarred, bleeding, and lost brain that houses all this damage. What we did in rehab was slightly 12-step-ish, which by all accounts, Bill W. was a fraud and AA doesn't have the success rate you think. More on that another time. But they had us come to understand if we have all this dysfunction that we only tried fixing with dysfunctional behaviors and tactics, we would be trying to drive forward with the e-brake on in park in front of a cliff. We had to learn a different way of doing things, i.e. healing, how to process, coping, and how to navigate our own terrain. Example. At that time, freshly sober for three days, we had to realize that you aren't in control of fucking anything. And I'm not talking about God is in control. As an addict and an alcoholic, you could be in control of you. You can be in control of you, but not right now. Because if you were, you wouldn't be a drunk. You wouldn't be in rehab. Your life wouldn't be a mess. Those are facts. So with the, you can't get well with the same brain that got you sick, you come to understand that this brain, soul, heart that you have needs repairing. Also at its core, it has a shadow that needs big time attention and you are not going to do shadow work correctly if you are living under the guise of I am in control when immersed in an addictive cycle. I thought that for years when I stopped using, I was going to be able to fix myself but just stopping the usage wasn't even close to being enough because I hadn't dove in headfirst yet into the why behind the dysfunctional behavior, and I certainly didn't tap fully into the necessary shadow work. To do shadow work, you have to be in a pretty good place due to the graphic nature your nasty side is going to present when you get down there. So just as we've explained, doing shadow work in a depressive state isn't a good idea. It's also not with a bottle of booze taped to your hand or a bag of pills or powders. You'll make it far too easy on yourself to come across something dark in that shadow and resort back to 
that crutch and dive right back into the liquor and the drugs and take three steps back in any progress. 16 years as of the 22nd, I get asked how by a lot of people, and I honestly don't really know some days. I reject God and religion, and I think that AA is basically a refined Chinese red dragon World War I mental torture tactic used to create future AA members. A scam, basically. There's a reason why Bill W. got kicked out of the Oxford group. You can look that up. I think people who live in a bottle deep down are missing something. And until they figure out what the missing ball of joy is that they need, they're going to continue to use and they'll continue to lose track of their dysfunctions and let their shadow run over them and destroy them on a slow burn. And that is where I kind of exist in a strange spot as this sober guy. I don't feel a hundred percent whole or complete. I feel like I'm missing something. I feel most days like I have a hole and a half deep down and my inner villain drives a bit more than I'd like to admit. Somehow I'm not drinking or using. Do I remain sober to suffer with depression, which has been documented on this show so I can have an unclouded view of all the scars of this shadow self. Am I in love with the suffering because true constant joy isn't something I trust to exist as a real viable thing? Or as a friend put it, am I just used to having my sobriety as a part of my identity? And if I stop at being sober, I won't know who I am anymore. Well, that last one's easy. It's not so much the sobriety, it's the commitment. And I'll tell you a little story to kind of get towards the end of this. A little bit after rehab, I saw my grandfather for the first time in about a month or two. And he was suffering from Alzheimer's. And I remember he looked at me and he told me he'd never seen my eyes so clear. That affected me. And bet your ass it affected me. I've never forgotten that. And I never forgot that when uh, he was near death and the last time I got to speak with him as he was laying in that hospital bed a few days from death, I kissed him on his forehead and I whispered to him that I would honor his name. And I feel like getting myself clean and doing this work on myself is a way to do that. 16 years later, here I am. I know this. I've learned more about myself sober. I've met and accepted more of my shadow during this time than I could have ever thought. I've learned more about how people work because of it. Even with depression, I've realized who and what I do and don't want to be. Drinking made me apathetically apathetic and Apathetic people are some of the most sufferable people on earth. It's the most unattractive way to wear shame like some badge dysfunctional people walk around like they're proud of. I don't want to be like that. I'd rather be overwhelmed and kind of struggle with being over-emotional from time to time and work on how not to be than be apathetic and wonder how the fuck I exist 
as such every day and for all my fuck ups and areas of improvement, I still don't exist in a vindictive headspace. I don't want to see other people suffer unless there's consent, of course. Back when I threw that wallet into the bushes, I was everything I can't stand now. But that had to happen to start the 16-year journey and to get me here as imperfect as I am. I don't know if I'm proud of 16 years sobriety necessarily. I think I'm more proud that I'm just not that same guy I was back then. And for today, that's good enough for me.